From the 14th through the early 20th century, the Middle East consisted of a hybrid civilization composed of various tribes and peoples stretching from the Balkans down through the Arabian Peninsula under the auspices of the Ottoman Empire. To its promoters, Constantinople administered a multicultural society that balanced ethnic and religious differences into a harmonious whole. To its detractors, the Ottoman regime was a decadent, degenerate ruling class that lived above the poverty of its servants and relied upon an endless supply of slaves to feed its military and royal harems. In the end, economic and political weakness led to the empire's unraveling as nationalism in the wake of the First World War broke the back of the empire and led it to the carve-up into the modern Turkish state and the surrounding nations. I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. A military industrial complex. A new world order. But we are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hockey. It's been ideal. Well, hello and welcome back to the Myth of the 20th Century. We actually have another show this month. Thank you all for, uh, again, tuning in. Uh, we have a wonderful guest, uh, Borzoi, who's here to talk about the Ottoman Empire. Uh, ever heard of it? Some of you may not have. Um, I had, but I didn't really know much about it. Um, I'm also joined by Nick, uh, who's uh, undergoing a satellite uh, reconstruction project, and he may be slightly delayed in his uh, witty banter. But uh, Borzoi, uh, why did you want to do this? What does the Ottoman Empire mean to you? <laughs> Ottomans, why and how? Slavery. Uh, I told the story to Nick and the long and short of it without getting is that basically I had learned a couple of things that I found interesting. I forgot how, why I think it was just during being interested in like, only, you know, we were, it was part of like the, those counter jihad type days uh, under the Trump administration when we were talking about Muslims a lot more. And I was a little bit more curious about them. And um, I, I don't know why I specifically singled out the Ottoman Empire. Maybe because I had remembered hearing stuff about, about their harem culture, stories about that. And I started looking into their harem culture and what's called the Devshame system, which was their child tax levy system that they imposed on conquered peoples. And I started to notice a lot of modern parallels to American society. At least that's how I, how I viewed it. And... I decided I wanted to learn more about the Ottoman Empire because I just didn't know much about it. it would, you know, people make memes about oh, retaking Constantinople and stuff like that, especially because uh, some of my Orthodox heritage was something I was interested in. And then the more I read, the less I understood because the Ottoman Empire is a six, you know, it's a six hundred year history and is one of the most maddeningly complex issues, especially the further you get towards the end game. Of it, and so what was originally going to be just a, you know, a, a brief intellectual curiosity of mine 
morphed into three years of reading multiple books. And there's a <laughs> so William Gladstone has this famous quote about the Schleswig Holstein question uh, about because that situation was also uh, extremely complex. And it, the quote goes to the extent of that only three people have ever understood the whole Schleswig Holstein business. One, who, the German prince who is dead, uh, a German professor who has gone mad and me who have who has forgotten the entire thing. And I feel like the second one after after trying to dig into all this information, but I think I have a grasp on it. But that's what got me interested in it in the first place. And I wanted to do this in some form, whether it be podcast or article, because this is a history that still has relevance to this very day. You can see parallels between the society that the Ottomans had established and our own. You can also but you also have the history of Zionism being part of this and the history of Zionism is part of our current, you know, political and historical battle. So it's stuff that I think people need to learn. But the problem is when you have something, a topic this complicated, how do you tackle it? So ultimately I figured it's time to do a good overview of the Ottoman empire and its transformation into Turkey. So people at least have a reference point if they want to dig deeper into it. Well, what what were the contemporary empires that the Ottomans vied against? In my readings, they were up against the Habsburgs, uh, Austria-Hungarian Empire, the Russians for a period, uh, and then later it was like the French and the British. But w what was the primary, or Persia, I can't forget Persia, but w what were the primary rivalries and sort of for people to contextualize this, like w what time period was this empire existing? Well, it depends on the time period you're talking about, but so basically the the Ottoman Empire starts in the in the 14th century, 1300s, and their main uh, their main uh, opponent then would have been the Byzantine Empire. I'm trying to remember what the status of the of the Ottoman of, of the uh, Islamic world at that time was, if if they had any uh, rivalries with any of the caliphates that were they must they would have oh. Um, I think it was the was it the Mamluks. Their main their main rival in the early period uh, on the Islamic side would be would have been whoever basically the descendants of the uh, uh, the Umayyad uh, so empire that was controlling a lot of. North I had Africa, to look so. this up, but yeah. well, you mentioned the Marmelukes, or I, I can never say it right. But Mamluks. Uh, I used to play uh, Age of Empires two on my computer back in the day. And uh, that was one of the units. I think it was like a camel unit uh, that I, I just it had a very distinctive name. And I think they were from like the Arab, whatever, Arab empire or something. And then the yeah. Ottomans uh, had the Janissaries. And they were like these uh, mm -hmm. sort of weird looking, not quite rifles, but they were using gunpowder in these tubes guys that would walk around and then shoot these things like a handheld cannon um i don't know very strange technology that's, but uh, that's actually that's actually why the uh the ottomans were able to conquer the the other uh islamic kingdoms is because they were very traditionalist and they were very dismissive of the emerging gunpowder technology and the ottomans wrecked them with the emerging <laughs> uh gunpowder technology but then going into kind of like their more classic high point era what the the, the two empires that basically the, stopped i mean that were the the bulwark against ottoman advancement 
deeper into Europe were the Habsburgs and the, and the Russian Empire. And the Russians would continue to be basically the thorn in the side of the Ottomans for the for the rest of their lifespan. Also, the the, the um during, around the time of Suleiman, you also had the rise of the 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 uh, Safavids, the which was the the new the next iteration of the Persian Empire on their on the east uh, on their eastern front. But uh, basically, going into the 19th century, the Russian they they fought like seven wars with the Russian Empire in uh, from within the span of about a hundred years. And then going into World War One, uh, they had a complicated relationship with the French and, and the British because they had supported they had supported the Ottomans in the Crimean War as a bulwark against against Russia. But they did in a way where basically the Ottomans were on the hook and and constantly indebted to the French and the British until they decided, well, we're, they're not useful anymore. We're going to carve this baby up because we want those lands. So, you know, and then obviously everybody knows in World War One that the Ottomans were allied with their their old rival, the Austro-Hungarians, and then Germany being their biggest partner against the uh, the Entente powers. Well, you know, I think a good portion of our audience has probably spent more hours than they would like to admit correcting the last 600 years of history and grand strategy games. <laughs> but I want to start at the beginning of that. And to where it all went wrong, uh, I want to discuss the rise of the empire, and more importantly, I want to discuss how it worked. How, how, what, what was the, how did the Ottoman Empire function? Yeah. So here's the here's how this all came about, and I'm, I'm going to be, and I'm sorry to anybody who is as deep into the Ottoman Empire as I am, if not more. So I'm going to be very very broad on a lot of this stuff. I'm not going to get into some of the finer details because I don't think that's going to help people who don't really have a reference point for this kind of stuff. So <clears throat> the, the Byzantine Empire, you know, is, is sitting, you know, on is largely primarily centered in the Greek lands and Western Anatolia. And it figures in the in the Quran. It's obviously they call themselves Romans and they it was Constantinople was the new Rome, and it had it, it figured a bit in Islamic uh, in in Islamic theology and history, which is kind of the same thing for uh, for them, like with the way the Arabs operated. But coming out of the out of Central Asia, you had this is and this is the uh, nobody knows for certain if this is the actual correct history because the. The Ottomans wrote their a lot of their history after way after the fact, but the Ottomans claim to have been descended from a Turkic tribe called the Oyuz Turks, which you know typical of these Turco-Mongol people from the the central steppes area. You know these are this is a nomadic horse culture people, and they were driven out of those lands by the Mongols and driven into Anatolia where they. Formed a lot of the uh, the problems that the Byzantine Empire uh, had to deal with a lot of, with a lot of these different Anatolian tribes. After the basically after the collapse of the of the Seljuk Turks, the these Oyuz Turks, or at least the people who claimed to be descended from them, formed what would become the the empire that would topple the Byzantine Empire. 
But what their focus, their culture was focused very much on a holy warrior culture. The Ghazi, which is the holy warrior in Islam, was integral to what they were about. And they were they were all about basically let's like kind of like similar in the Mongol model, conquer lands, enslave people, incorporate them into our horde, continue to loot and plunder. They didn't really, they weren't a very administrative people. But as they continued to grow in size up to the uh, up to the point that they conquered Constantinople, they there was a transformation that occurred uh, in the elite of the of the Ottoman Empire. By the way, the, the they get their name uh, Ottomans because the the founder of the dynasty uh, is Osman the first. That's where the name Ottoman comes from. So Ottoman doesn't even refer to and ethnic people, although there are, there is kind of a weird transformation that happens down the line. Did the uh, Simpsons bus to- driver get his name from the Ottomans because he was sometimes referred to as Otto Man? Uh, that's probably a reference or something to it. Yeah, actually, back back when the Simpsons were good, they actually had some pretty smart writers, so I wouldn't put it past them. Who knows? So when they started wanting to, to actually administer these lands, these the elites that and functionaries that formed these emergent this emergent uh, Ottoman dynasty, they did something that I've never really seen many empires do, except for maybe a couple really other really decadent ones, where because they didn't want to, you know, any any empire any nation's going to have like this elite that forms and the and prominent families, noble families within that form, and they kind of become the power brokers within the empire. The culture of the sultan of the Ottoman Empire was wholly focused on making people fanatically loyal to the sultan and pushing out any of these entrenched families that are going to try and maintain their own privileges. So in order to administer this growing empire they had, because the the, the Turkic peoples were mostly focused. They just wanted to, to loot and blunder. They just, that's what they wanted to do. They weren't really focused on administering an empire. So they create a slave class based around the conquered peoples by under the, under basically under the idea that the, that the convert always has more zeal than the person who was raised in the faith. So what they would do, and this became especially prominent when they started conquering European peoples is they they treat it as almost like a, a eugenic slave program for themselves. So this and this is where I got interested in it because the Devshirmay system was their child tax system when with the people that they conquered specifically Europeans because they didn't really they didn't apply this to any of the other Anatolian peoples like the Kurds or the Arabs and they didn't apply and they still applied it to uh, Europeans who had converted to Islam like the Bosnians. So it was a very racialized system. They would take children, uh, boys, and they would circumcise them, convert them to Islam. And if they had the capability of being warriors, they were put they were made into into the Janissary class, which was an elite fighting corps that was fanatically loyal to the sultan and the sultan alone. Or they became some other functionary or they became eunuchs. Um, And with the eunuchs, what they typically had those that the white eunuchs, the European eunuchs were in charge of the administration and African eunuchs, because eventually they got into Africa and they got African slaves from there. The African eunuchs were put in charge of the harem. And the harem 
was this the harem system is very odd as well because everyone's got the idea of the concubines but these were integral to creating the next sultans this is what i mean by the eugenics program because sultans didn't marry they never married they had tons of women which were almost always european caucasian the, the you know the caucasus areas caucasian women or armenians primarily europeans they would basically you know sleep with all of them and the moment that one of the concubines had a son he was no longer supposed to be with her and he was supposed to move on to another concubine so he'd have multiple sons through various different women and when that sultan died typically there was a a, a civil war among the among the would-be sultans who and whoever came on top had all of his brothers all of his half brothers strangled to death and but this it created this weird situation where yeah they were originally a turkic people but within a few generations the elites of the ottoman empire were largely of european descent who had basically been forced to convert to islam and they maintained that system and became fanatically loyal to that system that's what i mean by how odd the system was administered and this happened fairly quickly into the into the into the establishment of the dynasty i think it was by the second or third sultan they basically had the system in place where they just kidnapped uh kidnapped children and made them you know also pederasty of course was very common in this but you know kidnapped children raped them circumcised them converted them to islam and made them but because they're put into the system which also privileged them and they've been you know they had their minds warped and brainwashed all constantly they become fanatically loyal to the system enforce the system and attack the families that they were once pulled from uh yes yeah, speaking of the execution of competitors uh to the to the sultanate the execution method the ritual execution method is interesting uh involving I believe it was silk rope. Yes. Is that correct? Strangulation. Can you go into detail about that. Yeah, they actually the assassins for it. I can't. I can't remember if they were eunuchs or not. Um, but they were mutes. They they would basically the uh, these specific slaves the the that would do the assassinations had uh were rendered into into mutes. I don't know if they were death mutes or not, but uh, whoever the the winner within the within this uh, uh, fratricidal civil war among the sultan's would-be heirs would basically have his assassin. Usually what would happen is they would, they would get, it would either, they would either trick their brothers or they would force them into submission. And then they were led into a room where these assassins would basically take the silk rope and strangle them to death. Strangulation was the preferred method by which, uh, the failed heirs would uh, would be killed. Although it got to the point, there were some instances where there were so many potential heirs that they literally were just killing off male children because it was it was a weird thing where every time whoever won like had to basically restart the next generation. They did not want to have any competition, any family competition within the within the Ottoman Empire. So the the succession became very focused around the harem and this is uh, one way that they also in, uh, incentivize the the European women that they would kidnap is basically because the mothers of these would-be sultans had a lot of power and a lot of influence typically and 
they'd be competing with with each other through their sons. Yes, Nick. And my understanding is if the sultaness was to get out of line in some way, uh, bear some competitor's child, uh, they would be executed typically by drowning. And I know that water plays a sort of sig ritual significance in Islam. Do you have anything to say about that? That one I, I don't know as much about because when you read a lot of this, you end up reading about a lot, a lot of assassinations, a lot of a, a lot of uh, internecine conflict within the uh, within the Ottoman system. So I don't know much as much about the the uh, the sultanas who were executed. There were definitely quite a few, though, who were executed because basically every generation you had a completely new power struggle and Janissaries were part and parcel of that because while they were fanatically loyal to the sultan that also meant they had a big say in choosing who that winner was going to be in those power struggles the early the early fights basically were about who can who can win the janissaries over to them and how do you win how do you win people uh, a, a a class over well you give them privileges and that's basically how the janissaries turned into a, a very entrenched privileged class in their own right long after they stopped being a fighting an elite fighting unit. But um the Janissary Janissaries often also, also typically had a lot of resentment towards a lot of the the sultanas because of the kind of power politics they played. There was even a point in Ottoman history where they had what was called the Sultanate of of women because it was in it was in, a, in the middle of a regency period basically. But um unfortunately I don't know much about the uh, the drowning aspect of it. Go ahead Nick Well, it's, I'd like to talk a little bit more about the harem system because in reading what I have read of the history of the Ottoman Empire, it really does appear to be an integral part. And I think it's ironic that a system that was set up with the sultans not marrying, a system that was set up to prevent, not to ostensibly to prevent, to, to keep women from distorting the the power of the empire ironically turned into something of a gynocracy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you have a lot, there's a lot of different examples. Because uh, uh, what's funny is because, you know, the, a sultan would typically have many different heirs through many different women, the sultan often didn't spend a lot of time with his uh with his heirs although you know they might they might have one or two favorites that they might try to uh groom to be their heir and successor by giving them as they got older at uh administ um you know administration roles to give them some practice and the like you like um salim the father uh uh was oh by by i think it was bayezid's son salim had basically gotten that experience in um, Trabzon, and he did the same thing for his son, Suleiman the Magnificent, but that didn't happen quite often. Um, usually they didn't really spend a lot of time with their, with their sons, so these were, these were men that would be raised entirely by women within these pleasure palaces of the harem. And that's, 
you when you look at the history of the various sultans, you see how many of them, especially at once the Ottomans moved away from their their Ghazi warrior culture days, they became a very sedentary, decadent, inward-looking, um, very feminine um, type rulers, and that's the result of being raised in the harem. And that's you you saw that happen quite a bit through most of the of the um, of the reign of the of the Ottomans up until the uh, the modern era. Yes, it's easy to see how rulers the supposed you know aristocrats of this power being raised by women could help to explain this i mean obviously the sort of psychosexual obsessions that i mean you read about this i mean i know that this was it was even kind of a literature that was luridly popular in europe as to the depravity and excesses of uh, the ottomans but also to take account of the racial aspect that if you're being raised, if your mother was, you know, an Aryan that was kidnapped or otherwise forced into sexual slavery by your Asiatic father, that then you yourself develop some kind of complex about Aryan women and you continue this process. Yes. Uh, it- because what also what happened quite a bit as well, since these were kidnapped women, um, we don't have exact accounts on some of this, but you can imagine. I mean, we know we do know that oftentimes these uh, these potential heirs like learn the language that their their mother you know their mother's mother tongue. They learn the stories that they had grown up with in their in the Christian lands that they were from. Now it's going to differ from concubine to concubine because some of them were from lands that had already been conquered by the Ottomans. So they had a context for the Ottoman experience, but others were poached from unconquered lands. I mean, Suleiman the Magnificent's, uh, the most famous concubine in Ottoman history, Roxlana, was a Ruthenian woman from Ukraine which obviously was not under Ottoman control. She was kidnapped and brought to the uh, to the Sultan Suleiman, was absolutely obsessed and adored her. He was one of the few sultans who actually married his concubine. Um, but these boys that are being raised by, the, uh, by these kidnapped European women had some inkling of what the, uh, of, of what their, you know, their mother's homelands were like. And I mean, this is a little bit of speculation on my part, but I imagine like that's what drove some of the desire to con- like to conquer other European lands or to become more European. That's the, what makes the, the Ottomans so weird and why they straddle a strange place in our history because the Turkey, like, to be a Turk in the Ottoman Empire was not a was not a thing to be desired. Turks were seen, even though which is weird because like they they claimed descent from the Oyuz Turks. They admired those those uh, those Turk nomadic warriors, but the actual Turks that lived in their empire, those were bumpkins. They didn't have any co- the the cosmopolitan intellect, urbane culture that uh, post co- uh, conquest of Constantinople that was associated with the with the Ottoman Empire. So in a way, the Ottomans saw themselves as well they saw themselves as the successors of Rome and they saw themselves as a part of Europe but they also saw themselves as in a way better 
in Europe because they had this, you know, they were you know, they they had some bizarre form of Islam as well, which focused so heavily on their mysticism and holiness. And I don't know, it's 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 uh, you. I see when I hop in here, Nick, I can go on about this, but I want to hear what you got to say. Well, I would wanted to add to what you were saying and that they the Ottomans being the ones who destroyed thousands of years of history of the Greek and Roman world at Constantinople and was, was it 1453? Yes. They themselves seem to have in their program of the education of their elite, they had a heavy focus on Western philosophy. There's a, there's a lot of paradox there, what you're talking about, a sort of confused sense of identity where they want to be European, but at the same time have racial contempt for Europeans and their practice towards them when something was one of uh, humiliation and torture and uh, essentially mind control. Yes. Yeah, because, I mean... If you if you're a would be heir to the to the Ottoman Empire, you I mean it's it's going to differ from 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 boy to boy because there were some who were who had Armenian mothers. Um, there were some who had uh, there was at least I think there was at least one that had a Jewish mother. There were some that were you know a little bit more closer to the Eastern peoples, but the majority of them had European mothers. And so, like I said, within a few generations, these they looked European and. To the state, like go look at a picture of the of the royal family that still exists, the Ottoman royal family. They look, they are, they just look like Europeans. And so you grow up in this environment where the, you you are made aware that there's that people look different. There's there are the reality of race is there because the person in charge of the harem is an African eunuch. He looks different, and he was deliberately put there because to be a pimp over over European women. And then if you have any experience with your subjects, you notice that a lot that more the like the lower classes have more of a of a darker, like swarthier complexion because either being, you know, just closer to the Mediterranean peoples or the Anatolian peoples. So you see that they're different as well. But you were raised you you were raised in this odd Islamic tradition because the Islam that the Ottomans practice was very strange. They were influenced quite a bit by uh, Sufi orders, especially the because uh, the Janissaries have a have a deep association with the Bektashi order, and you know those people might have heard of the whirling dervishes. It's a very esoteric, mystical form of Islam that is very unrecognizable to a lot of people who have a cursory understanding of Islam because it just doesn't seem to have any of the proper jurisprudence of it, and they were constantly breaking. Um, uh, Islamic laws. They were they weren't they weren't doing slavery correctly the way that uh, Islam prescribes. They were it, most of the Ottoman uh, rulers were drunks. They drank wine constantly. Obviously, there was the boy love aspect that was endemic to the culture. But this is something I didn't know until I read uh, Mark David Bear's book on the Ottomans. Not a si- throughout the entire uh, we're talking about six hundred years of history. Not a single Ottoman sultan. Not one. Not a single one ever made the Hajj to Mecca. And that blew my mind when I learned this. They, they, they had this very kind of like anything goes, but 
um, because the the sultan is is closest to God idea of Islam that was part of their culture. So you have these Euro- basically these these European uh, boys that are being that are part of a kidnapping culture that focuses on kidnapping European boys and making them slaves that are fanatically loyal to the sultan. Uh, where man boy love is practiced on the daily and is part and parcel deeply in the culture. And they have this, it's not going to create a healthy relationship with Europe when you grow up in a culture like that with, with the kind of religious beliefs that they had. Go ahead, Nick. Well, I, I would be remiss if we got through this without mentioning uh, a notable instance where this backfired on the Turk Roach. <laughs> in which the uh, a a young Vlad the Impaler was held, as he's called, uh, derisively. But it's actually, I mean, it's, I I think it's pretty metal. Uh, he was held. He would have been presumably circumcised uh, publicly, which is was the practice when he, he was, when he was held along with his brother after his father's revenge. Uh, put these swine on spikes as they deserved. Oh, you're talking about Vlad Tepes? Yes. And that one, I think that was, I'm trying to remember the time. That's that was, And that was pretty early into the Ottoman Empire. I think that was 15th century. So that's actually pretty early. That was when they were making their biggest territorial gains. I mean, uh, you know, so much so much of of the southeastern European identity is was forged because of the incursion of the Turks. I mean, uh, the reason why Kosovo is such an important part of the Serbian identity is because of the their battle with, and I can't remember the the year. I think it was in the 1350s. I think it might have been. I, I don't remember the exact year, but the um, the Battle of Kosovo wiped out. The, the Serbian army, including their king, they were basically martyred on the battlefield. But in the end, they were still able to assassinate the uh, the, sult- uh, the Ottoman Sultan. I think it was Murad. But it's it's also the day- finest moment of the polls. Yep. Yeah. The the uh, the the, the um, there's a couple, there's been there were a couple of different sieges of Vienna, but the one during the War of the Holy League. Which also kind of like it was the the point at which the decline of the Ottoman Empire really wouldn't turn around. In fact, actually, the 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 Sultan that was involved in that one, Mehmed the Fourth, um, he was the last of the kind of like the Gazi of, of the Ghazi style Sultans, the conqueror types, because he was trying to bring that culture back into the Ottoman Empire. But the the failure of the it's called the War of the Holy League that. The disaster of that war and the failed siege of Vienna led to his deposition by the Janissaries, uh, which happens quite a bit. <laughs> Janissary revolts are, are extremely common. Uh, yeah, as to the siege of Vienna, I I find that it's a very heroic and very tragic moment in Europe in history because you get to see a glimpse of what Aryan unity like. And then at the same time, after after pushing the the Ottomans back, you had a return to fratricidal conflict. I mean, if the unity had held, it could have we could have wiped these motherfuckers out. And unfortunately, that 
that you know that uh, that unity collapsed almost immediately there was there was not quite we look back on it very fondly you know as as this great european moment but i mean the moment that the, the turks were driven out it was all about they started fighting amongst themselves over spoils and the like and you know the goodwill vanished pretty quickly and unfortunately the the tur this is a good book on this stuff is called Useful Enemies by Noel Malcolm. And he basically, it's a book about the relationship, the how the relationship of Turks and Europeans and how the Europeans often utilized um, the Ottoman Empire to do shame praise and basically attack themselves or attack other Europeans. Um, the Protestantism is tied up in all of this because part of the 95 theses involved um, Martin Luther railing against what the Vatican was doing in, try, in trying to generate crusades against, uh, against the Ottoman Empire. And because of the, uh, the fratricidal religious wars that were going on in Europe, it became very common in areas that were very Protestant. They had a saying, they had a saying better, uh, better Turk than papist. Um, they, because of, of, um, it was more of like, I, you know, it, it was more of the, the, what the Catholic church is doing is so intolerable that the, that the Ottoman empire would simply be better. It wasn't, I don't, it, I don't think they were genuinely saying that they would rather live under the, the Turks who knows. I don't think they, they actually believe that, but the Turk was often utilized as a way of basically attacking other Europeans because I mean if, if there's anything Europeans love doing it's fighting one another but the the presence of the of the Ottoman Empire in Europe created a lot of problems not just the conquest of European lands but in the identity uh, uh, fights that were going on between Europeans and amongst themselves and they never were able to really unite against the Ottoman Empire. The closest you got was basically the Habsburgs and the Russians working bit by bit to whittle down the Ottoman Empire and start retaking lands. It really, it really wasn't until about the 18th and 19th century that you had European powers declare themselves the protectors of specific groups under the Ottoman Empire. The the Russians declaring themselves the protector of Orthodox Christians. Um, the French uh, declared themselves protectors of, of Christians in, in certain lands, and the British did the same thing. Uh, the British actually declared themselves the protectors of, of Protestants and Jews in Ottoman lands. Yes, Adam? I, I wanted to actually explore a little bit of the nature of Christianity and perhaps Judaism in this ostensibly Muslim uh, empire. Uh, because the, uh, the Orthodox church at the moment currently has, uh, about three divisions. And I know the Russian, uh, is one Greek is another, and then there's this sort of somewhat forgotten, but, uh, referenced occasionally Anatolian one. And I don't know if that's a modern phenomenon or if it was still sort of a, a remnant that was able to uh, persist underneath this, uh, bizarre sultanate. Uh, but obviously the uh, Hagia Sophia, which is this uh, really uh, amazing looking temple in the middle of Istanbul, was actually built 
during the Byzantine era as a church, uh, and now it's a mosque, and you can go inside and just see uh, incredible um, artistry, but also a history as well with... Uh, there's even like a runic uh, graffiti uh, written at, at some level of the uh, the building because there were Vikings at one point who were, uh, I think, hired as mercenaries. The Varangian uh, Guard, yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting stuff. But so how did... Um, how did the Christian world and what the hell happened to all the Byzantine peoples under, um, what happened to these people and, and, and their culture and their religion, uh, during this 600 year reign. And then also, uh, I believe they were, uh, the Ottomans that is, they were administrators, at least on paper of Jerusalem, which is the intersection of the three, uh, major, uh, monotheistic uh, religions that at least the West is familiar with, uh, that of Christianity, Judaism, and, and Islam. Uh, what 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 was going on here? Uh, how did uh, how did these other two religions survive underneath the uh, Sultanate with the well, Muslim majority, basically? That, no, they weren't the majority. Actually, the thing is, that's really? the thing. Like the, the the Muslims were not the Muslims were not the majority until basically the 19th century when they had oh, lost so okay. much of the European European Christian lands and also the the Russians and other and other European powers drove out all the Muslims in their lands they had a, the Ottoman Empire actually had a huge mu- Muslim refugee crisis on their hands in the 19th century and they had to resettle a lot of the Muslim people like the Tatars and all that that used to live in uh, in European lands so the reason and that it's because they weren't the majority that they had to that they had to establish the system. Like I said earlier, you know, originally the Ottoman this Turkic this Ottoman Turkic system, they the, the Turks just wanted to they wanted to do the Mongol thing of like, okay, we're going to we're gonna we're gonna ride in, we're gonna rape, pillage, plunder, um, we'll leave some you know, we'll get our tribute and all that. But the Sultanate system that developed wanted to administer these lands and even though they Try they and they did they did convert a lot of people. They it was they were never going to be able to convert them quickly enough to make them into a into a majority Muslim empire. So you're administering over these non-Muslim peoples, large like I mean almost entirely Christian, some Jews, but almost entirely Christian. So what do you do? Like well, that's where that's why they had the system to call people from these communities turned them into Muslims that were fanatically loyal to the Sultanate and who were also could be you know, utilized as shock troops against the very people that they were conquering. And they turned the people that they conquered into 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 tax and slave farms. That's what they did. They were they you'll see there's this is a problem among Ottoman scholarship is they constantly run cover for the uh, for the Ottoman Empire because they cited it as like well this is like you know like in a, in a in a brutal time period the the Ottomans found true uh, tol- uh, tr- found the best form of tolerance they could among different uh, groups of people in the most diverse uh, empire in, uh, in the <laughs> world at kidding. the time really, they, 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 mostly scholars they discovered they, America they, they do this kind of stuff but what they what the Ottomans essentially did is they, you know, like I said, they made the Christian, the Christians largely European into 
taxing slave farms, and that's how they ruled over them. And they gave them, they allowed them a certain level of, they called them millets, like that was the communities. They gave, they allowed them a certain level of leeway to manage their own affairs, especially from a religion, from a religious perspective. Like, so the, they left the, the churches. I mean, like they, they took churches and converted them into mosques, mosques like the Hagia Sophia, but they, largely let the pe- like the, the religious leaders administer to their people because they figured if we do this it'll cut down on revolts you have to you can't totally one dominate the people you're ruling over you have to give them some rope otherwise you're going they're going to fight for their uh, for their survival and for their lives and there were a lot of people who collaborated and there were people who who converted and most of the and going again to the fact that the, that the Turk within a few hundred years was largely viewed as just a bumpkin and didn't have the urbane culture of the Ottoman. Most of the the the, uh, the bureaucratic and administrative class and the Janissaries, those were, they were all descended from basically uh, Greeks, Slavs uh, and Armenians and some Jews. But Jews kind of had a, a different role in the empire. Yeah, and I, I was doing a cursory uh, overview of what I could find on the Ottomans uh, before we started, and there, uh, th- there's an entry in Wikipedia called Massacres in the Ottoman Empire, and I think people in America are familiar with the Armenian Genocide, which was sort of a hot-button uh, political issue about 10 years or so ago. Uh, but there have also been many other groups that have been uh, systematically targeted and uh, killed or ethnically cleansed at the very least. Uh, I don't have all of them up in front of me, but I, I do recall reading about others uh, besides the Armenians. And I don't know what the official strategy was when they go about doing this as opposed to uh, trying to recruit them into uh, basically endorsing the uh, the wisdom of the empire as sort of the American model seems to be uh, going about when it recruits you into your their university system from the far-flung corners of the uh, the global system but the uh, the massacres were very heavy-handed obviously and that is not something that uh, at least modern America will at least admit to or want to uh, put forward as a way to uh, quell populations now, this was perhaps not that uncommon in the sort of 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries, if you look at the other empires of the world. But uh, I don't know if Borzo, if you have any anything to say about what they were thinking when they were going about murdering millions of people in their empire. Well, I mean, that's that depends on the, on the time period you're talking about. Um, a lot of the a lot of the, like the Armenian massacres didn't like really really kick up until like the late 19th century. Um, uh, Nick, do you have? Are you, I see your hands up. Do you have something um, similar to this, or was your uh, question or comment different? Yes, I, I wanted uh, what you're describing is uh, similar. I'm I'm a bit more familiar with the the history of Al Andalus and a lot of the distortions, uh, typically Jewish distortions, that take place when you look at the history. There's a decent book. Uh, I think it's called the myth of paradise that's a bit in the somewhat counter jihad uh, but it is a, it was an okay book uh, at least i remember liking it anyways my point is that 
if you can maybe get into those details between, because typically the way the story goes is that, oh, uh, portions and Jews are gated to this uh, second tier or third tier class system under Islamic rule. Do you tell about the status and privileges and roles of Jews under the Ottoman Empire? Yes. So, and just quickly to answer your question, Adam, I'm actually going to, we're going to, I'm going to come back to that because I'm looking at the page you're looking at of now of massacres in the Ottoman Empire. Almost all of this is 19th century. And that stuff is basically from when the Ottoman Empire is losing all of its European lands. Uh, Nationalism is on the rise. Every group under the Ottoman Empire is seeking their own self-determination or even their own their, their own uh, land and, and nationhood. And so when you have a situation like that, you're going to inevitably have nonstop violence because in a shrinking empire... Yeah, they're rebelling, basically. Yeah. And they're so, trying to put it down. Yeah. Yeah, and then that's... So that's a, that's a big... That, that's a big topic for basically the, um, the, the young Ottoman and young Turk era of the Ottoman Empire... But so I'm going to go over to Nick's question here about Jews. So Jews in the Ottoman Empire had a very long history. Now, people have asked me like what their involvement prior to the uh, the conquest of Constantinople was. And I don't really know. I couldn't find much information on that. But I have no doubt in my mind that um, there was a Jewish presence in the emerging Ottoman Empire. They had a high tolerance for them. But after after the conquest of Constantinople, um, Mehmed the Conqueror, Mehmed II, um, actually, because uh, Constantinople had, had been utterly depopulated over the over the years through wars, but mostly plagues, and it was like only like like, like a tenth of its former size. And so he repopulated the city by forcing populations to move there. In fact, he moved all the Jews that had been congregating in Salonika, uh, Thessaloniki. Um, it would later that city would later become a majority Jewish city, but the, the Jews that were there at the time were moved over to Constantinople to the point that they constituted 10 percent uh, population of the newly conquered city. Um, and then in 1492, after the expulsion of the Jews from the Iberian Peninsula, I don't remember which which sultan was in was in charge at the time, but he he welcomed the Jews into the Ottoman Empire and they they swelled in that like, to the point that. Like I said, they they became more than fifty percent of the population of the city of Salonika, Thessaloniki. It's a lot of people don't don't know this, and that we actually at one point for a big chunk of history, a couple centuries, we had a city in Europe that was a majority, a outright majority Jewish city, and Jews, of course, filled the roles that they that they normally fill in in a society like this. Um, they were involved in the slave trade. Um, they're actually really, really big in the in the textile industry, and this they basically controlled the fashion industry for for much of the empire. And I can't remember what it was that like led to their decline. Basically, the when when Europeans were able to better fashion their their own clothes and compete with the with the industry, that was what really actually damaged the Jewish textile industry in Salonika. But um, one like Jewish women uh, had a role called they were the Kira because the harem women were not allowed to leave 
the palace or really do business on their own. So they needed a go-between to handle any kind of business that they wanted to do. So Jewish women would basically be the go-between between harem women and the outside world. They were essentially like a Ghislaine Maxwell type position in this uh, bizarre sexual slavery system that they had. Uh, Jews were heavily involved in uh, basically um, doing, uh, being involved in, in diplomacy and the like. And there's, a, there's actually a famous story of a, of a Jewish woman who um, actually wrote to Queen Elizabeth of England on very familiar terms uh, which like I mean a very presumptuous way like, like and she like this was not a Jew that had a prominent position in the Ottoman Empire but acting as a liaison with with the uh, with the uh, the women there towards the uh, towards the Queen of England she assumed these heirs and this was something and like Jews under the Ottoman Empire were extremely privileged to the you know, and to the point that they Many of them kind of considered the Sultan a messiah-like figure because the the, the Sultan the, the Sultanate had conquered their enemies, the Christians. Um, this continued up until the the era of uh, Sabbatai Zevi in the 16th or 17th century. He's you, this is a name you might be familiar with. He was the one who claimed to be the Jewish Messiah, and he uh, he amassed a large following. But when he came head to head with the Ottoman uh, with the Ottoman Sultan, Sultan, um, he ended up buckling and converting to Islam, and many of his followers followed suit, and that's what gave birth to the Donme, which means uh, converted uh, the Donme Jews, the crypt- and they were the crypto Jews who actually play a hugely prominent role in the revolutionary period of the late Ottoman Empire. But the thing about Sabatai Zevi as well as that he had this enormous influence on Judaism because so many Jews did believe that their Messiah had come, uh, that it kind of started to kickstart their interest in moving to Palestine. He supposedly had, uh, like the failure of the, of the, of the Sabbatean movement uh, had an influence on the emergence of Hasidic Judaism. Um, it, it, the, the story of Sabbatai Zevi is almost like worthy of an episode in and of itself because there were just so many Jews in this empire and they held such a prominent position within it and had and all the other positions they had was like um, frequently the Sultan's uh, physician was a Jew them in the capability of being able to easily assassinate a Sultan which some of them have been rumored to have done or like having the ear of the Sultan so it was a very Jew-friendly uh, empire, and it only waned when um, more fundamentalist Muslims began to have a bit more prominence and position in it. Because, like I said, the, the, the kind of Islam the elite practiced was this – they called it deviant dervish kind of uh, – at least that's what Mark David Baer calls it – a deviant dervish type uh, belief system that permitted them to do all kinds of debauched things that would shock the average Muslim. but I mean, the, there were genuine Muslims in this empire, and they didn't like the influence that a lot of these Jews had. So you have this waxing and waning kind of anti-Semitism that does occur among different uh, classes within the Ottoman Empire. But for the most part, Jews were extremely loyal to the uh, to the Sultan up until the up until the Zionist era. Really, I mean, even when they they celebrated their 500 
or their 400 year anniversary of the of 1492 um, to great fanfare because they they viewed the Ottomans as their saviors against the European Christians. Now, on the subject of textiles, I know that dress was a codified aspect of the uh, slave hierarchy in the Ottoman Empire. So could you talk a little bit about that? I, I know that, for example, you were expected to dress a certain way according to your station and according to your racial or and religious status as a subject. Um, yeah, I don't know about the uh, the fashion as, as much. Uh, obviously, turbans were. I mean, like when you look at art of the portraits of, of the Ottoman uh, sultans, they they often wearing these huge onion style uh, turbans, which would uh, like the bigger the better, basically. Um, I'm trying to I'm trying to see if I if in my document here if I have anything about the. Uh, about the fashion specifically of what they were uh, expected to wear. But I mean, you could often tell millets the uh, apart from each other based on what they wore. Jews were eventually much like in, in European countries were forced to wear uh, certain hats that uh, singled them out so that they that people knew they were dealing with uh, uh, with Jews. Um, but in terms of the specific fashion in a um, in like in a in a segregating way, I don't know actually about that one as much. Did you, um, did you read something about it that you had some insight in that, Nick? Because that one wasn't wasn't covered in, in the last book. I, I, I don't know this. I don't know the specifics exactly, but I know that, that you were expected to wear certain colors, uh, certain types of dress, and that your house was supposed to be painted in a certain way. It's all it was supposed to be, and this makes sense when you consider the multiracial nature of the system to where, you know, I mean, especially with all the interbreeding that you need to be able to distinguish people easier, considering that people might not be exactly what they look like at that point yeah, because no. they've been degenerated racially. And this and this and because I'm 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 picking some stuff up here now. Yeah, I mean this really kind of became codified under Suleiman the Magnificent. I mean he's also known as Suleiman the Lawgiver because he tried to codify a lot of uh, a lot of these aspects of the Ottoman Empire so that it was a little bit more uh, uniform in its application. But um, yeah, the clothing of of the various religious groups, the cler uh, you know the clergy tradesmen, like these were all uh, basically strictly regulated. Uh, so. It was it really it really was like a caste system society. And I mean, you see this especially prominent with like the with the very privileged classes because like the Janissaries is among them because with the with the privileges that they had and they had in the competition to get other privileges, they fiercely guarded this stuff. And so people identified very heavily with their group and the lowest level you'd have. You know, people mostly identifying with their with their religious community if they're just kind of like the tax far, like if they're the tax or slave cattle. But then as you kind of go up in the in the functionary classes, these are people that want to be want it to be known who they are, who they represent, and what groups you know that they're going to align with. And this it, this leads to a lot of the kind of um of the conflicts between uh, 
cast to the point that because this becomes so entrenched, one problem that's that the sultans have is that they're powerless in the face of these of these uh, privileged classes that they create, the Janissaries especially. The amount of times that a sultan tried to basically curtail or just outright abolish the Janissary class, it took them over, it, it took them hundreds of years for one sultan to finally wipe them out because they just couldn't, they couldn't curtail these people. Once you have an actual class of people that are able to propagate themselves and continue to demand uh, privileges or, or, you know, um, engage in the power process, it's hard to get rid of them, especially if you're dependent upon them. Well, and while we're talking about dress, I will, food as well. What was the, what was the agricultural basis of the empire? I, I'm assuming that they had grain slaves. I mean, in somewhat modern empire must have grain slaves in order to really be a state. Where did, where did they source? Well, from? Uh, Egypt historically was a big source of grain for yeah. the Romans, but you know, a lot of the rest of the Arab lands are obviously too arid for growing much of anything. Well, and I don't know well, this, how big the population was at the end, but there was probably no more than 10 to 15 million on average, perhaps throughout the empire. And they kind of had to have a large administrative area, uh, is my understanding, because their lands were not particularly fertile compared to uh, well, other parts of uh, Europe, for example. Well, don't don't forget that, like the Middle Eastern aspect of the empire, the the focus on that was a result of them losing their European lands. For much of the history of the Ottoman Empire, the heart of the empire was Constantinople, and the power center was basically southeastern Europe, the, the lands that they had conquered, and and the Straits. Um, you know, so the, it's a major trade area, and then of course, like you have the Aegean, uh, the Aegean coast as well. And this, like this, being the power center, would continue on up through the uh, up through the uh, the nineteenth century. And as they gradually lost a lot of those lands, that a lot of the revolutionary uh, people that tried to take over the Ottoman, or and that succeeded in taking over the Ottoman Empire, they were from what was, they, they called themselves Rumi, which means Roman. Like the, the, they were the people that were descended from that, from the, from the Europeans that, uh, and other groups that the, the Ottomans had conquered there. Like the, their Anatolia and, and a lot of the uh, uh, Arabic lands did not play a prominent role in much of the empire's history. They, uh, now, Egypt absolutely was essential, and actually, that's why they often dealt with uh, rebellions and problems with the with uh, with their Egyptian province to the point that Muhammad Ali in the 19th century led a successful revolt that broke Egypt off from the Ottoman Empire. But um, a lot of their agriculture would have been in the uh, most likely would have been in the in the European areas that that, that were farmable. Um, I don't know much about it. None of the books that I, I read went kind of deep into the uh, into the agricultural aspect of the empire, but almost certainly they would have been drawing quite a bit from the from the Balkan lands. And that it was also another reason why they were constantly fighting with the Russians over the Black Sea, you know, getting access into Ukraine because Ukraine has always been some of the most fertile agricultural land 
in Europe. And that was a big, you know, it's not just, the, it's not just having the ports and the trade area there. It's like, that's fertile land. So they it was one reason why they were constantly always eager to expand into Europe was to increase their agricultural productivity, especially when you, when, if you just conquered the people and you turn them into your, you know, tax and slave cattle. Well, yeah, Borzo, you mentioned uh, at what point the uh, influx of European textiles, I believe. Uh, but I think also when the Industrial Revolution sparked off in Britain and spread fairly quickly throughout the rest of the European continent, I do think that was another factor in contributing to some of the uh, relative weakness in the Ottoman Empire. They They seemingly did not have the ability to produce on an industrial scale like the Europeans were starting to. And in terms of uh, what a lot of that industry was also used for, it was also in the military and firearms, uh, naval naval vessels. I believe actually the British had to end up building uh, part of the uh, Ottoman Navy at one point. But uh, I don't know if you can speak to the industry aspect, the economic aspect of the Ottoman uh, Empire, and also how it uh, perhaps led to the later decline in the empire. Um, I mean, basically, that's, that's the long and short of it, of it there. They, it, was, it, it was an empire that by the 19th century had become extremely dependent on European powers that hated Russia to prop it up uh first it was uh it was the british and french um but uh, they were kind of they were looking into how into how they kind of nickel and dime the ottoman empire to death then eventually the the germans who actually sounds needed a, familiar <laughs> and then eventually the the germans who be, who uh were an actual military ally that they absolutely require uh uh required but uh there wasn't really much that the Ottomans could could manufacture after the the Industrial Revolution that would make them like a strong export economy. Um, luxury stuff, like basically what they had to offer the world, would have been much more luxury oriented, which is how it all kind of start, started. As well as the fact, this is actually what a big thing that led to their decline is that the reason why the Ottomans were able to flourish quite a bit was because they were able they they controlled access to trade they were the, they were essentially a a, a middleman empire which yeah. of course is what drove the european partly drove the europeans to find other trade routes routes and opened up the uh, the american continent to european expansion uh, well how much was the and, suez canal a factor you mentioned uh, egypt breaking away and i i was trying to find like somebody linking the Suez Canal to the Ottomans. And I, I wasn't able to do that, but you might have stumbled across it in some of the books you read. Egypt was Egypt, Egypt was independent by that point. So it, it was just, an, it was another. Right. And that must have contributed though the Ottomans there. to like the, yeah. the obsolescence effectively of the, the tail end of the Silk Road, because it's like, well, uh, why would I travel for four months or probably a year or something by camel over uh, Afghanistan, you know, to get to China when I could just take a boat? Uh, I, I don't, I don't see how that could have helped at all. Uh, it must have really weakened the position of uh, the Ottomans. And be constantly extorted in the process. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah, because that's like that's how the Ottomans made a lot of their money was they were basically putting premiums on all the stuff that was coming from uh, from the east. Actually, it looks like um, the 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 history of Egypt in in the 19th century, the Ottoman Empire is kind of complex because there was a point when they were kind of they were nominally under Ottoman control, but they were effectively just independent. But yeah, they weren't. The Ottomans had attempted to do a Suez Canal before, failed, uh, and. They weren't really that involved in a lot of the in, in the building of the Suez Canal. So what you see con- like from basically from from the the moment that the Europeans started to colonize the New World to the uh, the siege of Vienna and then through the 18th century where of, of the Enlightenment and, and the European powers really coming into their own, the the decline of the Ottoman Empire became basically inevitable and terminal because there was just basically they, they never had were able to respond to any of the changes that were occurring in the world because their position was just so like had just been formed based off well conquer people make them into tax into tax farms um and control trade access well the the austrians and the russians stopped were able to effectively prevent them from ever expanding again uh colonization and exploration had opened up different trade routes, and the Ottomans were no longer required as middlemen, and they were, and nationalism was on the rise, and so they were losing territory bit by bit. They really just didn't. It was just a, there was nothing they could really do to turn this around. Its dissolution was inevitable. In fact, it was only the fact that the, that the British and the French propped it up for as long as they did during the 19th century that it didn't collapse sooner. They just didn't want Russia to become the main player that would take the place of the Ottomans in the East. That was part of the Eastern question, but everybody knew, I mean, that's why they call it the sick, you know, the sick man of Europe. Everybody knew that the Ottoman empire was not going to last. It was going to be cut up one way or the other. It just had no way of being able to, to bounce back and, you know, and didn't have the capability of turning into like a manufacturing superpower. Cause it just didn't have that capability. didn't have the population for it. It didn't have the, the, the lands for it. And they didn't really have the will for it because their culture was was a very inward. Um, it was a very inward looking one. It wasn't an outward looking one, like the way that European cultures were. Yeah, but basically, you have like you have this fat, degenerate, pervert, mixed race uh, squatting on your in your path, and you're just like, well, I can go around this. Did you guys ever see Aladdin? Like the Disney movie? Yeah, I think Nick's description is pretty accurate. I don't. I don't know if I remember that. That description. Fucking onion heads. Well, the Sultan. <laughs> the Sultan was uh, this sort of short, portly, uh, onion head guy who lived on a bunch of pillows if I recall correctly, and they don't have obviously any of the sexual escapades depicted in the Disney film yet. I'm sure Aladdin 2 will have plenty of that, but... Oh, it's implied. It's heavily... It's, oh, it's no, very, it's, it's very it's implied. implied. It's very implied. <laughs> okay. Maybe as a youth, I didn't quite pick up on that, but I'll have to check it out again. Um, but yeah, so I... What's I, your brain, did? Yeah. Well, I don't know. Uh, in any case... Uh, that movie was interesting because it, it sort of explored this part of the world that I really didn't understand or know anything about. And I still don't really have a very clear understanding, 
better after having this discussion, of course, but the, uh, yeah, the depiction of this very decadent ruler who literally lives in a gargantuan palace over a bunch of, uh, really squalid, uh, underclassmen, I think sums up the, the ruling system of that, of that empire. Yeah, it's and uh, I mean, dec- you, uh, it's fun to focus on the decadent and lurid aspects of their culture. In fact, I have an, uh, I have a, a book that's basically all about um, the harem and includes a lot of pictures uh, in it. And that's these are the kind of stories that tantalized Europeans quite a bit. As I mean, and led to the Orient- Orientalist movements. In, in Europe, because there's this fascination, there's this otherness, there's this alienness, especially like when you have, when you look at the, who the elites are and how similar they would have looked to Europeans of the time, it, it does create the, this tantalizing um, story you want to, to dig into. But the fact is, is that it's a little bit more, comp- as fun as that is, it's a bit more complicated than that because you have, like, the Sultan's also a prisoner of the system that his ancestors created because he's he's being raised by women completely isolated from uh from the world despite the while being told that you know being the sultan you know is the pinnacle of civilization he's surrounded by these disgusting because the uh, actually bear talk uh describes what the eunuchs look like like what happens to the human body when he becomes a eunuch especially when they because for, for the African eunuchs, they they cut they, it was um, it was penis and testicles that were that were removed. But eunuchs had were, always were very sickly, um, disgusting, uh, horribly smelling people. And surrounded by these is like people who attend uh, to you day to day. And then you have these different castes and classes that were supposed to be fanatically loyal to you. But as time went on, they were all about enriching themselves and they could they could determine whether you lived or died. They the, the amount of times that Janissaries deposed sultans is I think actually in the in the double digits. So your existence is constantly on a a razor's edge to the point that when you look when you study a lot of the lives of the of the sultans, which uh, Noel Barber does in his book The Sultans, he focuses more on the personalities there. These these guys were nervous wrecks. They were constantly in terror of their own people and their own the family. Throne room becomes a prison. Yep. And so the Grand Vizier would often be like the actual power that was guiding the country. And there were some good ones, but there were also a lot of bad ones. But you know, the person who's supposed to be guiding the this empire towards its future is somebody who doesn't actually have much of an understanding of his own empire he lives in constant fear and terror of his own subjects especially as it goes into the later stages of the empire most of the uh sultans preferred to uh basically preferred to be with their concubines play with their toys a couple of them were into hunting or or conquering but when those were closed off what happens especially like when the sultan is the empire but he's in this constant fight with the classes that are supposed to be the bureaucrats of the empire, and those those classes are fighting amongst themselves. It doesn't really give that empire a future. It just closes in on itself, which is what happened when you look at the 19th century 
going into the 20th century of the Ottoman Empire. It was, it was just, it was um, territory being cleaved off, groups wanting to rule themselves, and then coming into this because of how weakened the system was, these revolutionary movements that were, and academic, this is not like a conspiracy theory, academics will just straight up tell you this, revolutionary movements that were almost entirely uh, Freemasonic free or full of crypto, the crypto Jews, the Dunme Jews, uh, working to seize power in the empire. I mean, it it was an empire that was that. If you look at it from the outside, it was, it's easy to see like this is like, how how this is not going to last. But if you're inside of it, what do you do? It, you know, it's well, it, it, it paralyzed. It, it, you know, they were paralyzed by what what they could, about what they could do. As a as an American who uh, wonders what happened to the America that his grandfather uh, grew up in and even his father grew up in. Uh, I do remember this uh, show called The Young Turks coming on the air and uh, basically (laughs) representing what seemed to be an alien entity in my own land. But apparently they're based on something that happened uh, in the latter period of the Ottoman Empire. uh, And that is the uh, actual, they, they called themselves the Young Turks. And my understanding is pretty limited, but it was effectively co-hosted by an Armenian whore. Yeah. Yeah. Who also was confronted uh, during one of her public appearances about that uh, sort of irreconcilable aspect of the name of her show. And I think she attempted to address it, but I think it was revealing that, you know, as you put it, she's there for probably uh, money reasons and fame and, not necessarily for any other uh, greater progressive cause, despite what they claim to be about. But the Young Turks uh, were a reformist movement, as they thought of themselves during the latter era of the Ottoman Empire, that attempted to put a constitution on top of this mess, and they wanted to get rid of the monarchy. And I think they also wanted to modernize. Probably there's some implicit uh, European aspirations. They wanted to basically form a modern European-style state in this particular uh, regime. And I don't know exactly all the nitty-gritty, but it was under their period where they actually went about uh, massacring the Armenians as a Nick was alluding to with Anna Kasparian being Armenian, yet she's on a show called The Young Turks. Pretty, um, pretty traitorous, uh, if you if you think about it. But nonetheless, uh, Borzoi, what do you know about The Young Turks? A- anything you want to say? The Janissary. <laughs> so if yeah, I mean, actually you can make that comparison. If you if you will indulge me, as I told you guys, I had a twenty page document that I could for me to reference, basically. Um, in order to talk about the young, because we've talked quite a bit about the general history of the empire, I want to build a quick timeline for people who are listening. I'm not. I'm, I'm gonna. I'm just gonna quickly run through this. I'm not gonna dwell on some of these things, but I want. I want people to know kind of where the where and why the Young Turks came about. Because like, you really have to talk about the history of the 19th century of the Ottoman Empire for this to uh, for this to make sense. So Ottoman, like as I said, Ottoman decline basically. Uh, ter- uh, you can you can put the terminal point at, at pretty much 1789, uh, with the uh, with Europe basically you know fully on the rise and uh, and the Ottoman Empire not able to uh, to cope with with these revol- with these revolutions that are beginning to happen 
in Europe that are changing the face of their of their government. So, uh, okay, let me go. So, you know, by the end of so, <clears throat> you had a couple of sultans that tried to get rid of their their Janissary class because the Janissaries were the biggest impediment to reforms happening in the in the empire because they they liked their privileges. They didn't want to give them up. Um, and you had this uh, push and pull between the Janissaries and other groups and the, and the sultans uh, as the Ottomans are losing territory to the various nationalist movements that are coming about in the uh, in the Ottoman Empire. You know, the most famous ones being the Serbian and the Greek revolutions with the Greeks outright getting their their independence. Um, this all leads into the auspicious incident in 1826. So it's uh, it, so Janissary revolt, Greek rebellion, insurrectionary provincial notables, the inferiority of the Ottoman Empire, defeats at the hands of other Europeans, the forced reliance of superior European armies and navies. All these factors forced Mahmoud II to seek a radical solution to a question faced by the dynasty since repeated Janissary revolts and military defeats had begun in the 17th century. How to save the empire? One way was not merely to rein in the Janissaries, but to abolish the regiments and annihilate their men. This would and this would lead to the event known as the auspicious uh, incident. So in, in 1826, Mahmoud II um, had a bunch of men uh, taken out of each military unit and made them into a new elite corps. The Janissaries realized what was happening and they revolted, but this time the Sultan was ready for them and he just they just massacred the Janissaries completely. They, they wiped them out. Um, like thousands of them were, were killed in the course of just a couple of days and they were hunted down and put into extinction, which allowed uh, the Ottoman Empire to go into what was called the Tanzimat era of reforms, which lasted from 1839 to 1876. So under so the Sultan at, at this point is uh, Abdul Majid the um, first. And that's when in order to compete with the Europeans, they started granting more equality to all the citizens of the empire, um, which since this completely changed the the face of how the Ottoman Empire had previously functioned with the hierarchy favoring Muslims over over Christians, um, it, it allowed a lot, allowed the people that the not the non-Muslim people under the Ottoman Empire to begin to really start to agitate for their own nationhood or their own rights or their own uh, privileges. And the, as the country liberalized, it began to, it culminated basically in the uh, the first constitution in 1876. Uh, the, wars of, the wars with Russia had a big impact on this. Uh, there was an eight, but the, uh, the events that preceded the constitution in 1876 was the year of the three sultans. So a coup, Deposed Sultan Abdul Aziz in May 1876, um, inspired by ideals of fatherland and liberty and facing uprisings in Bosnia and Herzegovina and Bulgaria uh, and the threat of war for Russia. Leading statesmen had decided to act. Um, Midhat Pasha he was a constitutionalist um, who had been praised by this uh, emerging movement of young liberal intellectuals called the Young Ottomans. Um, Minister of War Hussein uh, Pasha and Shiku Islam Effendi basically launched a coup and deposed Sultan Abdul Aziz, and they replaced him with his nephew Murad, uh, who was actually a Freemason himself. This is where you start to see the Freemason politics uh, really start to 
become prominent in in the Ottoman Empire. But uh, he was a nervous wreck and alcoholic. So then he was removed, and the sultan that took his place was uh, Abdul Hamid II, and he's the one who promulgated the Ottoman Constitution, basically in order to put a tamp down on all this chaos and demands for independence and autonomy. He was trying to meet people halfway on this. That was why the Constitution came about. But he ended up abrogating that two years later because of uh, just the problems it was causing because they were in another war of Russia at the time. And this would basically give the the impetus for the, the Young Turk movement because during this time period, because you had all these groups and nationalism on the rise, and nobody wanted to be part of the Ottoman. Anyone who was in the Ottoman Empire that wasn't part of like this Ottoman elite didn't want to be part of the Ottoman Empire. But they tried to create literally a civic imperialism called Ottomanism, where you had pride in being an Ottoman and being part of the Ottoman Empire. We're, we're going to take, we're going to, it's going to be a vibrant and diverse empire where everybody is patriotic for the for the empire and everybody's going to get along. This is really, this is literally what they tried to push. You can imagine how how well that was how well that was taken. But so, like I said, in the aftermath of the 18th of the war of Russia, Abdul Hamid suspended the constitution. And this action was met with two armed coup attempts. One that was by the young Ottomans, the other by Freemasons as, uh, as they tried to uh, replace him with back with Murad again, the, the Freemason Sultan himself. Um, this eventually led to 1881 of Abdul Hamid arresting a lot of the uh, reformers and sending them into exile into Europe, which is where the, the Young Turk movement really started to get its legs. It was among these people who had been trying, these, these liberal and Freemasonic uh, intellectuals who had been exiled and were trying to basically start a, a, a movement that would depose the the sultan and institute all these reforms and constitutionalism that they wanted. Now, around this time as well, you start to see like this nascent Turkish nationalism, but that really wouldn't come into play until the Ottoman Empire would lose the First World War. So now I can now I can talk a little bit about the uh, the young Ottomans and the young Turks. So uh, the uh, young Ottoman movement emerged well, in the eighteen sixties. Quick question on that. Like, Uh, does this, how does this, does this fit into the particular of, of Freemasons? Does this fit into the Shriners in any specific way that you've discovered? Yeah, they had, they used the hat. <laughs> <laughs> what the hell? That's actually, what is that? that's actually an excellent question. Although I think that's because um, Freemasonry has a little bit of an, or like in in the culture of it has kind of like of a, of an orientalism fascination to it um it is funny though that the shriners were established in in 1870 right around the emergence of the young turk movement it was the young turks that really favored the fez so there might be a connection there actually might be a connection there but i i don't know the um you know what? I'm just gonna say it probably there probably is a connection. Just I don't know what it, what it, what it is exactly, but I mean, obviously, Freemasons of that time period would be talking to one another. There was an international network of secret societies. So um, the Young Ottoman movement basically emerged in the 1860s among uh, the bureaucrats who had served in the 
Imperial Translation Bureau, and so they were well versed in what uh, what was going on in in uh, with Western European ideas, uh, and they were the first to really because as they had, during the era of reforms when they were trying to liberalize the country a little bit more to be able to compete with Europe, they started offering up like a little bit more freedoms, like freedom of the press. So the Young Ottoman Movement was the first to really take advantage of this independent uh, press. And in 1865, six men of the emerging Young Ottoman Movement founded a secret society called the Patriotic Alliance, which was modeled along the lines of the Freemasonic Carbonari in, in Italy. In their, they would privately meet with other uh, disgruntled bureaucrats and uh, members of the dynasty that didn't like uh, how Abdul Hamid was running the country. Um, and the young Ottomans would accuse the, the sultan's bureaucrats of concentrating power in their own hands. They basically didn't, they they felt that the, uh, the reforms and the Europeanizing of the Ottoman Empire was too superficial at what they weren't, it, it was just, you know, throw, throw them a bone. It wasn't an actual serious movement and they wanted a serious movement. So they were and that's where a lot of the uh, the young Ottoman support came from was from these uh these lower ranking bureaucrats that really didn't have any advance any advancement possibilities in the empire, which tends to be what what happens with a lot of revolutionary movements. But um, uh, the leading young Ottoman ideologue was uh, Namik Kemal. He came from a Bektashi Sufi family. He's the co-founder of Patriotic Alliance, and uh, he was. He, this is this is the time period when they were getting a lot of uh, Muslim refugees into the country, and the, uh, the Christian nationalists were are wanting to break away uh, from the Ottoman Empire. So he wanted to to have a little bit more supremacy of of Muslims in the country because the the quality of all the different peoples hadn't really led to a a good deal for the Muslims because now they had to treat uh, the Christians as their equals and the middle classes, especially in the uh, Constantinople uh, and um, Western Anatolia and South Southeastern European region of the Ottoman Empire was largely Greek, Armenian, and other other Christian groups. So uh, Muslims were kind of on the outs uh, economically and in, in privileges, at least like they were they were seeing it decline. And especially since the, the Muslim population was increasing, they wanted to change that. So anyways, uh, Kam uh, Namik Kamal, he promoted Ottoman Ottomanism where they would basically, uh, it was going to be a devotion to the fatherland and the empire. Uh, but um, the, young Ottoman the, the young Ottoman movement really didn't, uh, while it created the, uh, the groundwork, it really didn't go far. It was the young Turks that really were able to take advantage of of uh, what was going on, and this—that's that, part and parcel with the rise of the Committee of Union and Progress. The Committee of the Committee of Union and Progress is the most important aspect of this. It's where the three pashas, um, the most famous uh, leaders of the of the Young Turk movement, came out of. It was basically a organization slash political party that eventually become the undisputed rulers of the country going into. World War One, and they came. All these guys basically came, or this movement came out of Salonika, Thessaloniki, which is where the story gets really weird. This is where it gets really Jewish and really Freemasonic, because um, that's Salonika was was the site. Here's like, not only was Salonika a majority Jewish city, uh, it had the highest concentration of factory labor in the empire. You know, part of the textile uh, industry. Um, it was headed by a uh, the um, 
the word solidarity Federation was considered by the Second International to be the spark of the proletarian struggle in the East. Uh, it was the center of Masonic activity. It was the main domicile of the Dome Jews. Um, it was the it was it was the city that best supplied schools, uh, law faculty, and army headquarters. So this is where people were were being educated to lead a a revolutionary movement. The heart of the struggle was basically in Salonika. So opposition to Abdul Hamid II was launched by this uh, this new organization called the Committee of Union and Progress, which had originally started as a secret society in 1889 by uh, military uh, medical students. And then a lot of their supporters went to the uh, diaspora of the Turkish intellectuals across Europe and started making connections with them and got more support from them to the point that these different societies all started to emerge to the point that uh, the Committee of Union and Progress became the undisputed leader of what would become the the Young Turk movement. I mean, the guide, some of the guiding figures were uh, Dr. Nazim who, uh, and Mehmet Talat and Enver Bey, and these three figures would play a prominent, a significant role in the downfall of the, Ar- of the Ottomans and the Armenian question, and all of them would be viciously prosecuted after the war. These guys were all part of these new generation of elite, highly educated, young urban Muslim men, and they were mostly from that that room, that class of people who considered themselves Rumi, uh, Roman, um, as they came from southeastern Europe and northwestern Anatolia. Uh, so th- these were the people that. Uh, it, and the funny thing is, like they called themselves Young Turks, but most of them weren't actually Turkish, because again, like Turks were country people. They weren't like these were not the people. Tur- the Turks, actual like ethnic Turks, didn't live in the in these in these uh, highly cosmopolitan uh, areas where the power where the power was. These were these were the descendants of the people that had converted to Islam. These were the mixed race peoples, basically. And, so, uh, so to sum yeah, up, uh, who the young Turks were? Were they people like aspiring to be the elites? Were they coming from the elites? Were they Bureaucrats, uh, military guys. Like, how would you kind of encapsulate? They were mil- they were they were military bureaucrat people who, ha- and this is what you always see in revolutions. It's always like this. It's always like this downwardly mobile uh, class of bureaucrats that wish to upend the order so that they're the elite instead. And mm-hmm. that's what they were. These were highly educated because these guys were getting educated in places like Salonika. These were these highly educated bureaucratic military class people that would not be able to advance at all in the system because of the way that Sultan Abdul Hamid was running the country. And they also disagreed highly with, with how with the direction they wanted to take the empire. And they wanted to be at the wheel. And, be, and being that they had all these, you know, all this education and all these connections, so why not utilize it? Why not take things for ourselves? Why not? reshape the country as we see fit especially because because they're a lot of them were military class they were seeing all the uh losses and defeats the ottoman empire was taking in their territory shrinking and the the territories that that they were losing were where these guys were from they were losing a lot of the lands that they had considered integral to be part of the empire and to be their own homeland losing those european lands meant that they had to look eastward towards Anatolia and fashion that as the the new homeland and they wish to avoid that as much as possible. 
And Turkish nationalism plays kind of like a weird role in all this stuff. They they were kind of like pseudo nationalists. They utilized it because they you know they had to work with what they had, but they weren't really nationalists in the way that we tend to understand it or embrace the term. It was something that they had to utilize in order so that they could institute their form of like a of a progressive secular uh, government that was basically like literally it was it was going to be founded on Freemasonic ideals. I mean, the, the Freemasonry was a, was absolutely integral to the Young Turk movement. They they had their meetings in in Freemasonic lodges. Most of the Young Turks were Freemasons, like of the the ones that had influence and and power. Most of them were Freemasons themselves. The 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 Ottoman Freedom Society, which was kind of the society within the the Committee of Union and Progress that had a lot of that had the controlling power. All those guys were Freemasons. So that's these are the people that are forming the the core of the Young Turk movement, and they wanted. They also want revenge on on their enemies. That's part and parcel of them, like losing these lands and these ethnic tensions and Armenian revolts and all that. They're seeing their their empire that they uh, that they did strongly believe in being torn to shreds, and they want revenge on everybody that was doing that. Well, you were touching upon it a little bit, uh, and we mentioned it before, obviously. Uh, but were there any of the massacres that? seemingly were happening as kind of a lashing out by the empire at the nascent rebellions that were fomenting the inevitable decline of it that, that we should touch upon aside from maybe the Armenian genocide, which is talked about a lot. There was something that happened to the Assyrians. I actually knew a guy uh, who was Assyrian, a really intelligent, nice guy. Uh, and I had to look it up actually, cause I didn't know the term, but uh, it's basically this uh, part of the, I don't know if it's the Levant, but it's basically the part of the Middle East that straddles between Persia and Iraq, if I recall correctly. Uh, and obviously that was under the purview of the Ottomans. And so they were they were attacked. Um, the Greeks had uh, several run-ins. Uh, I'll have to get that page to remember more of them. But uh, is there anything more we should talk about uh, the massacres, uh, Borzoi? Well, the, ma- the massacres were probably always going to be inevitable in one form or another just because the i mean when you have when you have multiple different people having to live under a shrinking empire fighting is going to become inevitable like as i said earlier losing the european lands meant that the heartland for the ottomans later the turks was going to have to be anatolia and the armenians um, had basically three things working against them. They were, because they were Christian and they had a good relationship with the Russians, they'd often been utilized by the Russians to create problems for the for the Ottomans. They sought their own self-determination and they were also where the Turk, where, where the, uh, where the Ottomans were going to have to start, you know, putting, putting their focus on in, in Anatolia. That's where they were. So they were, you know, when you have different groups competing, like somebody's got to move. That's just how it's going to be. And so you had, and because they were also part of this, uh, of this Christian middle class that a lot of the Muslims were resentful of, uh, when it, when world war one happened, I'm not going to get into, into the genocide politics of that, because that's a very fraught political issue. If it was an intentional genocide or not, because genocide is a very loaded 
term, but absolutely the uh, the, the Young Turks and the, the Ottoman army and other actually other groups in the area as well were more than happy to take advantage of the chaos and, and problems that a war causes to to ethnically cleanse and displace the Armenians so that those lands would be opened up to them instead. Um, and a lot of it was also just not doing anything to help the Armenians. A lot of the deaths that occurred to the Armenians were were the result of, ju of just willfully not doing anything to, to help them. Uh, just because they just didn't want to deal with them. Uh, Armenians had, as part of their self-determination, had engaged in a lot of terrorism and a lot of revolts in the late 19th century. And so for a lot of the, a lot of these um, Ottoman officers, they saw this as payback for the problems that the Armenians had, they perceived had caused them. They saw them as a fifth column. Same thing with the Greeks uh, as well. I mean, and the chaos of the war caused the, the Greeks to try and take advantage and take lands. In fact, actually, the Treaty of Sev that ended the Ottoman theater of the war was supposed to give Anatolian land that was historically Greek back to the Greeks. Because um, when the Greeks fought for their war of independence, uh, they didn't get everything that they wanted that was historically Greek land. They had to, they, they got as much as they could. It took them a while to get to get a lot of the historical Greek lands back into this day. Obviously, they don't, they don't have all the historical Greek lands back, but they were supposed to get some of those Anatolian lands back um, after the war. But the Turks were able to fight for their independence and push the Greeks out of the out of Anatolia, which led to the population exchanges because they only they, they figured the only way uh, for there to be peace between Greece and Turkey was we move population, move Turks move Muslims out of Greece, move Christians out of Turkey. Didn't matter what their ethnic origin was. They went based off of religion. But I mean, this is the problem when you have a mixed empire is that people are going to fight and uh, accounts are going to be settled. And you're going to need like a political solution is going to require people to be separated and segregated. But that was not an option that was on the table for the late stage of the Ottoman Empire. And there were people that wanted to take revenge on Armenians, Greeks and other and other groups that they perceived had because had sympathies to Europe or other nationalist movements and had led to the carving up of the empire. So this will probably be the last uh, pop cultural reference I'll make, but uh, I did see Lawrence of Arabia uh, several, well, not several, but more than a decade ago. I'll put it that way. And it's a fantastic film. It's, it's wonderful. Um, cinematography and just it's also based on some history, which is also uh, very rewarding to feel like you're actually learning something you know, while you're enjoying something as well. But the, uh, the politics were, you know, somewhat uh, lightly touched upon, you know, it's obviously just a film uh, and simplifies somewhat what the history of this uh, ancient empire is actually undergoing. But the context uh, of the movie was, I think set in the first world war and, uh, the British were having one of their their best men uh, stationed in what uh, was not even called at the time uh, the the Arab Peninsula. I mean, it was sort of a, a, a notion that these people existed, but they were also very uh, distinctive and disunified and tribesmen. And I remember, I think Omar Sharif's character basically saying, uh, "You know, what is an Arab?" And this concept really didn't exist and the uh the obvious uh subtext was that the british were trying to 
foment rebellion. So to break up uh, an empire they wanted to seize uh, pieces of for themselves, and which ended up actually happening uh, during the war and the end of the war. Uh, but w- was this the end of the empire? Did, did, did it literally just stop uh, in 1919 or 18, whatever the end war ended? And, or, or did it sort of drag on for a little bit and then it, it somehow dissolved? Um, maybe we should talk about how it fell apart. Sure. Um, so I, I'll talk, I can talk a little bit about World War One here. So um, as, as you know, I mentioned earlier, there, there, the Germans and the and the Ottoman be, became an integral ally to the Ottoman Empire in order to to prop it up. And the Germans, because they didn't have a lot of European options at the time, they were kind of being encircled. Needed whoever they could get as an ally, and, and the Ottoman Empire became part of that. In fact, actually, there was kind of like a little bit of a of a German Orientalism going on uh, that was pushed by a, uh, a banking Jew, uh, Baron uh, Oppenheim, who was very friendly with uh, Kaiser Wilhelm. Kaiser Wilhelm was actually very friendly to to the Muslims. Um, you see, Actually, it's funny you see this a lot with, with the Kaiser Reich and going into the into World War One. They were very friendly with Muslims, hoping to create like a Muslim revolt around the world. Or And then there was also the, the, the German-Hindu conspiracy where they worked with uh, Indian nationalists as well to do terrorism even in like the United States in order to try and uh, some of the German schemes in World War One are a little bit odd, <laughs> but going into World War One, um, there's a lot to cover. Um, and I recommend for people who want a war history, there's two books that will cover all this um, in great detail. Uh, the Fall of the Ottomans by Eugene Rogan and The Ottoman Endgame by Sean McMeekin. But briefly, however, so, you know, Germany fires the first fired its first shots against France in the war when the battle cruisers Breslau and Gobin attacked the ports of uh, Skakita and Anaba in Algeria. And uh, basically the, the Gobin flees into Ottoman waters. And that's what played a key role in Turkey's entry into in the Ottoman Empire's entry into the war. Um but uh, the Turks did a lot better in the war than anyone kind of expected them to do. This was due to an, uh, yeah, because they were they were like, hey, uh, we'll give you this ship if uh, you fight the British. <laughs> yeah, and they were like, the Turks. Like, yeah, yeah, and the the Ottomans were like, hold my hookah. <laughs> and the Turks actually did a lot better in the war than anyone expected them to do they had because they were not they were very much a second-rate military power by that point mostly duking it out with uh with you know with with balkan slavs and uh and the russians and and, and occasionally the greeks so no one was really sure how what what the uh how but the turks i mean the ottomans had german support and german advisors which was probably a big reason why they did a lot better than anybody anybody expected but um the couple of the famous events, obviously, is uh, uh, Gallipoli, the Gallipoli campaign, which ended up being a disaster. And that was an attempt to sever the empire in half and make the capture of Constantinople, which was something that was always on the table to entice the Russians inevitability, in, in inevitability. But the ferocity of the Turkish defense, what this is also what gave rise to um, Mustafa Kemal as he led the, the defense of Constantinople. Um, and it gave him the clout to lead the nationalists later after the war, 
Um, Obviously, this event this event also had temporarily sidelined the career of, of Churchill, and it was an integral part of the identity of Australians and New Zealanders. But um, you had mentioned the Arab Revolt, uh, Adam. That was in 1916. Uh, the Arab Revolt is actually in, in the, the film is great, but the Arab Revolt is actually an extremely mythologized uh, event, and the impact of the Arabs and T. E. Lawrence in the war are vastly overstated. The main purpose of it was basically just to create another front for the uh, for the Ottomans to fight and to divide their empire, but also open up those uh, those Arabic lands, uh, the Levant especially, so you know, so that it would be easier to uh, to take the land for the Zionists, because obviously in 19, you know. I think it was in 1917 that was when the Balfour Declaration happened. These are things that are in the works, but um, the uh, it, they intended to basically cloak the British conquest of these lands in the garb of like an Arab nationalism and Arab self determination. And and Edmund Allenby, who was the leader of the Egyptian expeditionary force, basically tried to stage manage the the conquest of Damascus as um, Faisal's doing, but it was the Turks just withdrew from the city and uh, Faisal's Arabs were nowhere near. It was, um, he didn't, he, he didn't even arrive until two days after the fall of Damascus. Uh, it would, it had largely been Australian troops that had taken Damascus. Um, I already touched on the Armenians here a bit. Um, so in the, but in the end, of course, the Ottomans lose the war and, uh, the careers and lives of the three Pashas. I didn't really talk about them as much. These were the three men who uh, who led the Committee of Union and Progress going into the war. Um, it was uh, uh, Jamal Pasha, Talat Pasha, and Enver Pasha, and they were the ones. Like, when you talk to an Armenian, these are these are these are the three men who are considered like you know the true Turkish devils. But um, they're. Their uh, careers and lives ended in disgrace, exile, and assassination. Talat Pasha was assassinated while in exile in Berlin in 1921 by an Armenian revolutionary. Jamal Pasha was also assassinated by revolutionaries in 1922 while working as a liaison to the Bolsheviks. And Enver Pasha was actually rejected by Mustafa Kemal um, when he tried when when the Turkish War of Independence started. So he went to work with the Bolsheviks before betraying them to lead a Turkic rebellion in their territories. And he was killed in that conflict in 1922. So basically the Ottoman Empire loses the war they're, and they're under foreign occupation. And so they end up, as part of the what happens to the three Pashas, they, uh, they do a bunch of court martials under allied supervision and war crime this 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 and this contributes to the turkish war of independence they do these war crime tribunals um set up in constantinople and a couple of the uh provincial cities uh they, there was 30 senior committee union of progress officials that were arrested at the uh arrested in, in 1919 and then a bunch of hundred lesser uh, arrests uh, seven leading figures who had fled uh such as enver jamal talai Dr. Nazim were put on trial in the absentia for war crimes. Uh, Enver's notorious special organization was also implicated in offenses related to the deportation and massacre of Armenian civilians. Um, most of them were eventually, uh, like the lesser ones were eventually released or, or given, um, you know, uh, lesser sentences, but the, uh, they put serious uh, death sentences on, on Talat, Enver, Jamal, and Dr. Nazim, which is why they, you know, 
why most of those guys didn't come back. Um, I don't. I I could talk a little bit about the war crimes tribunals, but basically, like as all war crimes tribunals are, I mean, I'm not trying to minimize the Armenian massacres. They were kind of a joke. I mean, like it's victor's justice. So it's it's exactly what you expect it to be. Uh, but the way that these war crime tribunals were uh, conducted is what made a lot of the Turkish nationalists and the remaining Turkish army that was out in the uh, out in Anatolia extremely angry because the, the these war crime tribunals and the way that the empire was being partitioned up under the Treaty of Sevres uh, was leaving nothing for the Turks. They were they were going to become a completely displaced people with a rump state uh, and under under indemnity, paying all kinds of uh, reparations and subject to, and like in their most economically viable areas were going to be under foreign occupations. It was basically like a, their version of the Treaty of Versailles, like much like how, you know, Germany was carved up. You had the Ruhr region that was put under French occupation so that they could, you know, uh, so that they could utilize that. And of course, the, all the indemnities and, and reparations that they had to pay for. But uh, the Turks managed to kind of get their act together, basically. And uh, the Turkish nationalists reorganized in Ankara under Mustafa Kemal, the hero of the of Gallipoli. This is also why Ankara is the capital of the country now, because one the main thing that gave the Turkish nationalists the impetus to be able to fight is how much their own government that they were supposed to be fighting and dying for had sold out their entire country and was collaborating with the occupying powers. The Sultanate you know, from their perspective, they didn't see a choice in the matter. But the Sultanate made it clear that they, you know, they were going to be uh, trying and executing people for war crimes under the, you know, under the under the guidance of the of the Allies, and that they were also going to basically punish anyone who had a a problem with this, which gave the the Turkish nationalists the Cassus Belli to fight back. So, and they did. You know, the Greeks were already occupying Western Anatolia. Well, they fought. Like hell, and they pushed the Greeks out of Anatolia. They were, I mean, they they did some pretty brutal things. It was, I'm trying to remember, it was Smyrna, actually. Smyrna uh, burned to the ground during the Turkish War of Independence. And, you know, they protected the Jewish and Muslim quarters of the city, but they made sure that the Greeks were completely driven out and that all their buildings burned. But uh, <clears throat> eventually, Mustafa Kemal was able to take Constantinople and uh, due to the, so, well, they basically what happened is they, the the Allies were tired of this because this is going into 1923. I mean, like this is five years after the war ended and the fighting was still going on in Anatolia, and the Allies just had enough of it because they couldn't they couldn't beat back the Turkish nationalists. So they decided to uh, do a new treaty with them, the Treaty of Lausanne, which led to the establishment of the Republic of Turkey and removed a lot of the the really a lot of the the worst aspects. It abrogated the the Treaty of Sevres, so they wouldn't have to deal with all those with all those things. Um, but due to the Sultanate collaborating with the occupiers, Mustafa Kemal, who was now the undisputed ruler of the new nation of Turkey, he ended the Sultanate and Caliphate and instituted a secular government and went to work building the secular Turkish state and actually building Turkish people. Because as we said before, um, being a Turk was kind of seen as a negative thing, like people. It, it was you were being a you were a bumpkin. You were some kind of Turkoman nomad. I mean, the people who were leading the country 
for 600 years were these descendants of European of converted European fanatical slaves. And so if they were going to be now the Republic of Turkey, they had to create a Turkish people. And so Mustafa Kemal establishes his ideology, which is called Kemalism, um, and it had six pillars, which you can still see on like the Republican People's Party flag. Um, republicanism, nationalism, populism, secularism, statism, and revolutionism. And this is when you hear that, you can hear you can hear why Turkish politics are very confusing. It's it's very mishmash, contradictory stuff sometimes. I think Chenk uh, Uyghur, or as uh, Black Pilled first, or not Black Pilled, uh, Black Pigeon speaks uh, refers to him as a chunk yogurt. Uh, I think it's very appropriate that he chose a much more Caucasoid-looking co-host uh, in the tradition of his, uh, I guess, people of taking on European-like slaves to be uh, as part of his, uh, I don't know, platform uh, to co-host his his Young Turks show. Uh, I don't know what what it means. Uh, what, what are the takeaways from all this? It, it's such a bizarre historical entity, the Ottoman Empire. Um, I don't really know anybody who wears uh, an Ottoman Empire shirt or has an Ottoman <laughs> Empire flag. It's almost like a this sort of dark page of history that nobody really wants to talk about. I, I, I don't know if there's actually anybody who's some sort of revisionist historian that thinks the Ottomans were some uh, force for cultural renaissance but uh the jews think that yeah and that's the problem right there because you're you're absolutely correct adam the 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 ottoman empire and what, one of the reasons why i got interested in it is one of the most reviled despised empires in history the only people who really liked the empire were the ottoman elite because the a lot of the you know the constituent groups they ruled over hated the empire. The Europeans hated the empire. Muslims, a lot of Mo- like you talk to Muslims who are a little bit familiar with Ottoman history, hate the empire because even like because the form of Islam they practice was so degenerate and has so little in common with you know with Orthodox Islam. And this is due to the Sufi, uh, Bektashi, Dervish influence on on the empire. And so, but because. It's it's a very complicated, complex subject and an area that most people aren't really interested in. That unfortunately cleared the decks for academics who have done a lot of work to basically be like I call them the 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 Ottoman academic defense force. Um, they when you when you read a lot of books, you will be and I mean like half of the academics are Jews themselves, but you will be surprised by how much they run cover, how they interpret uh, the the Ottoman Empire uh, Empire structure with rosy glasses. Um, so the book I actually I use for building a lot of this timeline is The Ottomans by Mark David Baer, who's a Jew. And here's some of the things he says in the book. Basically, he he refers to the Ottoman Empire as being a a European empire, and therefore it. They, it was Europeans who committed the Armenian genocide, and the the pederasty, pedophilia, 
of the empire. Well, that was just an extension of European culture. He literally makes this argument in this book. And this is this is the kind of stuff you'll find in a lot of different books on the Ottoman Empire because they have the market corner on that. And there's not really much interest in people in, in our side of things doing like a a honest assessment, a clear eyed assessment of the Ottoman Empire and looking at its ugliness in in all of its truth, because it's there's there's a great tragedy to this. I mentioned the Devshirme system earlier. Well, yes, those were those boys were kidnapped, but also like as you know, as the empire aged, there were Europeans that bribed to have their children put into the Devshirme system, even though it would remove them, you know, from their communities, from their families, and turn them into Muslims because they wanted a better life for their children. I mean, we see this in our system with the way that we hand over our children to, you know, in the hopes that they will have a, have at least a good life by playing ball with the system. And that's the dark echoes of the Ottoman Empire and why I think this history needs to be studied. But the lack of interest in it and its complexity means that this market is completely cornered by libtard and Jewish academics that have an agenda in talking about, well, actually the Ottoman Empire was, uh, was actually really in, enlightened and they practiced a form of tolerance that was utterly alien to the uh, to the uh, to the Europeans who were so brutal in the way that they oppressed minorities. I mean, look at the Ottoman Empire, look and how many different groups coexisted under it. Jews flourished under it. It was the, I mean, like you hear this a lot, you see this a lot in the books of how friendly it was to Jews, and they, they praised the empire for this. This this history is absolutely essential, and the way that it panned out as well has a lot of lessons because they had out of this mixed race people where the the like i mean i think you were asking me something earlier adam and i said the way to understand the way that 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 uh, turks reviewed in the empire imagine if the united states government had all in the last 250 years had consistently and totally uh was controlled by jews and and these and the current crop of insane libtards we have now Imagine right. 250 years of that and how they view white people. That's how Turks were viewed. And so by the end of the empire's lifespan, they had to make do with what they had in their land. They had to take the actual Turkic people and merge them with this mixed-race Ottoman people who didn't consider themselves Turks and make a single Turkic people out of that in order to even have a nation that even somewhat functioned. Um, I have this quote right here from uh, from an academic work on on this. The ordinary Turks did not have a sense of belonging to a ruling ethnic group. In particular, they had a confused sense of self-image. Who were they? Turks, Muslims, or Ottomans? Their literature was sometimes Persian, sometimes Arabic, but always courtly and elitist. There was always a huge social and cultural distance between the imperial center and the Anatolian periphery. As Bernard Lewis expressed it, in the imperial society of the Ottomans, the ethnic term Turk was little used and then chiefly in a rather derogatory sense to designate the Turkoman nomads or later the ignorant and uncouth Turkish-speaking peasants of the Anatolian villages. In the words of a British observer of the Ottoman values and institutions at the start of the 20th century, the surest way to insult an Ottoman gentleman is to call him a Turk. His face will straightaway wear the expression of a, a, lender, a Londoner's assumes when, you hear, when he hears himself frankly styled a cockney. He is no Turk, no savage, he will assure you but an Ottoman subject of the Sultan, by no means to be confounded with certain barbarians-style Turkomans, and from whom, indeed, on the male side, he may possibly possibly be descended. Well, in America, we white people are the 
are the Turkoman uh, barbarians. Yeah, so I guess what Shank Uyghur is, is teaching me uh, is that we need to create a young American group and uh, get rid of all these uh, oppressors. I think that's his lesson. Am I misunderstanding this? Shink uh, Winger, well, Winger, I mean, you know, what, Nick? Well, it's just, it's kind of, when you talk about the history of the harem and the Jew, it's a little bit on the nose when you consider you have basically, you know, Aryan girls from small town, Midwest, finding themselves bent over an Ottoman in East L.A., yeah, no, I mean that's that 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 was why I got interested in this topic in the first place. To me, the parallels were clear, and maybe like for for rhetorical purposes, sometimes I've I've overstated in the past, but it it just seems so obvious to me that there's a a similarity. There's a dark, you know, a dark mirror of American society in the Ottoman Empire, and the fact that the same people that were involved in the Ottoman Empire are 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 here too tells me there's there might actually be a connection there but i also look at this as like what our future is going to be because you know when the pig american system comes down i mean like it's not going to be this peaceful settling of accounts that's going to occur the chaos of the end of the american experiment is is going to be horrific and what does that mean for for whites in america who through the abuses that they've suffered through the system, don't have a good sense of themselves or are afraid to have a sense of themselves. An identity is going to need to be forged. An identity is going to be emerged. And that's what happened for the Turks. Now, the one who chose, the, the one who got to make that decision was Mustafa Kemal, who it's debated whether or not he had Jewish uh, heritage, but he did go to a, a crypto Jewish school, a Donme school growing up. His father put him through one. Um, his mother preferred that he went to a Muslim school, but he went to a, a Donme Jewish school. What does that mean? I don't, I don't know, but you know, you can, there's things you can admire about Mustafa Kamal, but it's also just the fact that he was the one who was there at the right place. And at the right time, he was the one with the clout, he was the hero of the war, and so he was able to marshal this effort and remake the nation as he saw fit. And what I mean, like, look at what Turkey is. Is that what is that what we want to become? Well, we're in a unfortunately in a similar position as like as a mixed people in this land. And there's a, there's a instructive lessons here of what can be avoided. What the Turks became was out of necessity. I will. I want us to become what we need to be by choice, not by necessity. Well, the thing is, in America, there's still, like, we haven't, we haven't been racially degraded to that point, at least the fact that there's still millions of us. I mean, it's not, like, America, if we got to that point where we became this uh, degenerate, mixed-race people that had has internalized what has been done to us and build an identity around that, well, then we deserve to be exterminated just like the Turks should have been. And that's, and right there, that's the, that's the lesson of how the Ottoman empire came to an end. I mean, people who took control of the empire and saw it, you know, saw its down, but let, let its downfall 
they viewed themselves as being in a life or death struggle of uh, exterminate or be exterminated. They, you know, they they massacred the Armenians to make room for themselves, and then when they lost, they were set to be completely uh, completely displaced on the level of Kurds of being a nearly stateless people, and they fought so that they wouldn't have to go through that. And that's, I mean, when you, it, it's nice to live in a, in a wonderful, huge empire that has access to all these people and all the goods and all the luxuries and to see yourself serenely as the shining light of the world. The Americans believe this and the Ottomans believe this as well. But the fact is that that light's going to come, that is going to, that light's going out someday. And when you're surrounded with a bunch of strangers in the dark, you know, we, would all, we all would like peaceful settling of accounts, but what do you think is really going to happen? Children like bricks and like mortar, so helpless and broken. 